You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, I just want to start with an encouragement for you, uh, just an application from this passage straight off the bat, um, which is, I wonder if you come feeling a sense of hopelessness at the situation in your life. Or maybe, uh, you know, it's just a knot that can't be untied, like a puzzle that you just cannot figure out. Or maybe you've come feeling that way about yourself. Maybe you come feeling incredibly hopeless. You read the Bible and you see the things that we should do, the things that the Bible says God is going to do in you one day, how he's going to change you and transform you. And you look at that and you think, well, how am I going to get from here, who I am right now, <laughs> to being like Jesus Christ one day? Well, be encouraged. Jesus must have... Uh, looked at this group of disciples, I don't think he was ever hopeless because he was without sin and to be hopeless is a sin, but uh, he must have looked at this group of disciples and wondered sometimes, how are we going to get from here to where we need to go? Because this is like the third time he has talked about his uh, the, the fact he's going to die, the fact that he's going to suffer, be handed over to the chief priests and the Pharisees, he's going to rise again on the third day, and they don't get it at all. He's you know, like... Most of Mark, he is quite cryptic. He's not really very straightforward. But we read last week is the first time he begins to be really, really straightforward with them and tells them what's going to happen to him. And they just don't understand. I think it's, you know, we said before Mark's gospel is like Peter's memoirs. Peter's way, I think, of saying I was really, really quite stupid. (laughs) Uh, And this is another great example of that. It's like, not only do they not get it, but while he's explaining these th- things to them, they're like, they're just putting it out of their mind. They're not really engaging. They're too afraid to talk to Jesus about, about these things. Um, they're arguing about who's going to be the best disciple, who's the greatest among them. So it's, it's kind of a double whammy of hopelessness, right? They're, not only are they stupid, but they're also like incredibly vain <laughs> and proud <laughs> and so on. So, and upon the foundation of these this group of disciples who became the apostles, Jesus founded the church. Isn't that amazing? Poured out his spirit on them. Uh, most of them uh, live lives where they, you know, uh, live lives completely sold out for God, full of the spirit, growing in the likeness of Christ. Um, just amazing men who gave their lives to Christ and who God built the church on. I mean, Revelation talks about them like being like the foundation. You know, the it's it's incredible and. If you're feeling hopeless this morning, <laughs> feeling that there's a situation you can't see your way through, God can see the way through. And if you're looking at yourself and thinking, I'm never going to be a nice person, let alone Christ-like, God can do with you far more than you can ask or imagine. Isn't that true? So anyway, that is not the main point of the sermon this morning, but I think it is a great, great little application. I'm encouraged because I often feel both of those things, so... Be blessed. Well, today's reading really, if you're looking at the main theme, carries on from uh, last week we were looking at uh, Mark 8 when Jesus begins to talk about suffering and uh, Jesus rebukes Peter um, because Peter's trying to say, that's not going to happen to you, Jesus. That's not going to happen to you. Um, so he has that famous phrase, get behind me, Satan. And uh, remember last week we talked about this command to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This command to willingly, if you like, embrace suffering as a kind of, it's a double element to it. The first element is we embrace suffering because we know that God sanctifies us through it. It makes us holy. But the purpose, the second point, the, the reason why God is making us holy is not just so we can 
be like shiny trophies on a shelf somewhere, but so that we can be free, free from fear, free from sin, in order to love others. That's, that's the whole point. And, and really this passage kind of doubles down on that. Jesus is talking about the same thing again. He's talking about the fact he's going to suffer. And he's, and he's bringing us along with that and saying to this group of proud and arrogant and slightly stupid men, you know, if you're actually going to be the greatest, you're actually going to follow me, be the people that you need to be, you're going to have to become the least. It's the same thing. And on top of that, he's now explained to us if you like, the heart of what it means to take up our cross. What does it mean to freely give ourselves, to sacrifice? Um, and those things come through really strongly. And it's a remarkable scene. Just a couple of things is worth not- noticing, really, that aren't really, really obvious in our context. It's remarkable because of the solemnity involved here. Jesus is in a house. He's talking to his disciples. They're having a conversation. He sees, comes to see their misunderstanding of the of the gospel basically still they still don't get it and he sits down now that's the significant thing because this is a position a rabbi would take to solemnly instruct uh, his disciples so this is no longer a conversation anymore this is like okay guys this is you know teaching moment right now you need to pay attention i'm sitting down i'm going to tell you one of the most important things this is like when jesus says truly truly or verily verily it's the same kind of weight a solemn teaching you guys really have to listen to this and then he explains again about the suffering. He explains about becoming the least, which we're going to go into in a minute. And he acts out this teaching by bringing a child into their midst um, and, and saying, you know, whoever welcomes me welcomes, whoever welcomes a child welcomes me, whoever welcomes me welcomes the Father. And what we have really in this, this scene acted out for the disciples and recorded for us are two big truths. Uh, I think that sort of frame what I think God would say to us this morning. Two big things that, that explain what God would say to us this morning. Firstly, is that pride blinds us to what God is doing. It, it puts us outside of God's plans. It excludes us from his purposes. So like the disciples couldn't, they just didn't understand about the cross. They were obsessed with, you know, with their own position in, in the messianic kingdom, which was to come. They just didn't get it. So pride blinds us to what God is doing. And humility, represented by this child in their midst, humility and service bring us into the closest fellowship with God. They bring us into close fellowship with God. You know, neither, neither of those things should surprise us as Christians because one of the great themes of the Bible, repeated again and again, um, summed up by Paul twice, says the same thing. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? That is a major theme of scripture. And Jesus is acting that, it's, it's in this story, it's, it's presented to us really obviously. The blindness of the disciples cannot see God's plan. You know, they're outside of God's purposes, but he gives grace to the humble, uh, represented by this child. And Jesus' instructions, they give us some specific ways that we can understand that. Why does God oppose the proud? Why does he give grace to the humble? Um, and, and that's what we're really going to get into. But firstly, I want to look at where pride comes from. Where does pride come from? So firstly, Jesus says, whoever would be first. Well, what? you may think that I just love you know, splitting hairs or nitpicking over my verses, but really, what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, whoever would be first? He can't literally mean, like, there's a great big race in heaven and someone's going to be the winner and it could be you. Like, it can't mean that, can he? He can't mean that. Uh, it, it, that's that's not what he's talking about. Um, St. Augustine, uh, Augustine of Hippo, 
he, he said something really wise and I think something really helpful for us. He said that all sin comes ultimately from disordered desire. That is, like, we have a good, we have good, God's made us, right? And he's given us desires and they, those desires are good. But when they're fixed on the wrong things, they're disordered. They, 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 they go awry and they cause sin in us. And, and St. Augustine also said, along with most church fathers and most of Christian history, he said that pride is the kind of the worst sin, the capital sin or the root of all other sins. You know, Satan's sin was pride. But even pride has a good root that has been poisoned and redirected somewhere else. So Jesus, notice, Jesus doesn't say, put all the ideas of being first out of your head, okay? Just forget about being first. You've got to become last. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, if you would be first, you must become the last. You must become servant of all. Um, so he's, there's a good root, right? Jesus isn't repudiating everything about this kind of who's the greatest. What is that good root? That's the first big thing for us this morning. I would say, I think it's right to say that that good root is basically the desire to be as, as a dozen different colloquial ways of saying it, as good as possible. <laughs> That's the first way. We have this profound, we would call it now, the disciples wouldn't have used this word of course, existential desire to be fulfilled. To be everything we can be, that's a bit too worldly maybe, but you know, I'm, we're, we're grasping around a subject here. We have a desire to be fulfilled, to be happy in ourselves, but I think more than that, to be useful to other people, to be, to be useful to other people, right? To bless other people and to, and to make the most of our God-given abilities. We all recognize that God has given us good gifts and even people who don't know God recognize that they have potential inside them that, that they should fulfill, right? To make the most of our God-given abilities, to honour and glorify God with every part of our being. And that desire to be happy, to make the most of everything God has given you for his glory, and to bless other people, actually in its purest form, that is simply the desire to be like Christ. Isn't it? It's the desire to be like Christ. That is good. And we can even put it like this, that's the desire for eternal life. That's actually what God is going to give us eternally, ever more increasingly. When we get to heaven is happiness. Yes. <laughs> happiness. Ever more, we're going to glorify him more and more and more. And we're going to, I don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to bless the, his creation and each other and whatever else is in existence in, this, in the life to come. We are going to bring life to that ever more abundantly. Oh, that is so wonderful, I think. So, that's the, this is great news, right? Even better news. You want that. Why do you want it? Because God wants that, right? And God's in charge and he's all powerful and he's all knowing. He wants you to be perfectly happy and perfectly glorifying him with every part of your being and blessing other people. Sorry, I said I wouldn't make sound effects. <laughs> so, let me just wrap that up. I, I looked for a quote. I couldn't find one. If this misses the mark, I'm so sorry. But if it, there's this picture of the whole of every, everything God has created, the whole universe, visible and invisible, and every single part has its part to play. Every single part, ultimately we're talking about in heaven, in the new creation to come. Every part of that creation glorifies God as fully as it can. 
Every part of that creation blesses every other part. And every part of that creation is absolutely fulfilled. Now, if you're a human being, that is, you know, if you're a rock and you're glorifying God and fully fulfilled in your rockiness and, you know, giving context to things around you, that's nice, okay? But if you're a human being made in the image of God, that is an incredible thing. Is it? There's no competition. There's no first place as in you're the winner. Everyone is first. Because <laughs> everyone is fully fulfilled, right? And God is fully glorified in everything. There's no competition. God is on your side and he's on my side and he's on the side of everything he created for everything to be fully alive. That's, I just think that's brilliant. That's what, that's God's plan for us. And that's our deepest desire. Even people who don't know God, ultimately, somewhere down there, the engine that drives them to do the thing they do begins at that, at that, that point to be like that. Okay. So where does pride come in then? Well, look at the disciples. Look at the disciples. They, they don't know what to do with this message Jesus has given them. They, they don't really know what's coming, right? They don't know what this messianic kingdom is going to be like. They've got all sorts of crazy ideas. And in their mind, they're driven by this desire we described, but because they don't really understand how it works, they're fixated on, uh, on a kind of competition with each other. I, I want to be great, but if I'm going to be great, you can't be great. So we don't know. Peter doesn't tell us who was arguing, but I bet it was Peter, James, and John. <laughs> well, because we know that from the other Gospels that they tended to argue about these things. So, <laughs> uh, and then so, oh, I'm going to be first, I'm going to be first, and James and John create their own little cadre and sneak up to Jesus while no one's looking and go, mind if we uh, sit next to you on your throne? You know, so there's all this ambition going on. Why? Because they don't understand God's vision. They think that if you're going to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be greater than everybody else. They don't get it. And they just don't get the whole eternal life business. Let's face it, they're just first century Palestinian Jews. They just, they don't, you know, you can't blame them in one sense. They don't know how to fulfill that desire. And so it, it comes out in kind of mutated ways, cancerous ways. It's like, it's kind of, they've got this desire driving them, but they don't know what to do with it. And then, you know, it's the same with us. It's the same with the people around us. People are driven by their desire to be fulfilled in some sense, but they just don't know what to do with it. You know, like, uh, some of you may have been through it. Some of you may be going through it. Some of you may be about to go through it. You know, men, midlife crisis. What, what, what is that? You know, it's characterized. You know, it's, it's a real thing, right? It's characterized by an existential crisis. Does my life mean anything? Have I done anything of importance? Have I wasted the first 40 years or whatever it is of my life? You know, do I need to change? That's what it is. It's a, it's a, am, I, am I on the right track? That's what a midlife crisis is. If you look at, I don't know, just people's like desire to own stuff, it's driven deep down by this kind of, if I own this, somehow that will complete me, that will make me the person I am. If I'm in this relationship or that relationship, you know, I'm going to be fulfilled somehow. If I'm famous, I'll get the recognition I deserve and then I'll be first in this weird, unqualified way. You know, I'm pretty sure 90% I started writing like 60%, and I, no, 70, no, I think 90% of social media <laughs> is driven by just this kind of distorted desire to be affirmed and be fulfilled. And it's just, you know, directed in the wrong place. People taking photos of themselves. Other people look at them and go, oh, you're amazing. But, but you see what's at the root of it, right? Your Twitter profiles. If you, I don't know if you guys, if you're on Twitter, if you're not, spare with the illustration. Twitter profiles, you have to write like, 
you know, a hundred words about yourself is like, you know, you have to self-define. Uh, I'm a mother, not me, obviously, but you know, I'm a mother. <laughs> I'm a, a dreamer. I'm a, you know, it's like, and I'm just, some of it may be genuine, but a lot of it is just this kind of desire to be recognized, to somehow be fulfilled and, and affirmed by the people around you. And it's this desire for, for what God wants to give us, but just all directed in the wrong place. So there's this, in the first instance, you know, that, that, it's not terribly wicked, actually. The, the fruits of pride at first aren't, you know, they're just a bit desperate and silly. There's this thirst at the heart of people's lives and at the heart of your life. But people around you, they don't have to quench it. They want that vision. The vision that the trying God gives us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give us. They want it. They just don't know his name. Guys, we know his name. And, you know, Jesus knows, and he has got this living water that will quench that thirst. So, he knows. The disciples don't know. People out there don't know. You guys should know, but I'm here to remind you. Jesus knows. He says, gather around. I'm going to sit down. You guys shut up for a second. I'm going to tell you. That's what we're here for this morning, right? So, what does it mean to be first then? Well, there we go. That's it. That's what drives us. And Jesus is going to tell us, how do we get there? How do we get this fulfillment? If you want to be first, you've got to be last. What's he saying? Well, just like he can't, he's not saying, in heaven there's a great big race, and if you come first, you're the winner. He's not saying, in, a great, in heaven there's a great big race, and if you come last, you're the winner. <laughs> doesn't literally mean you've got to be last. But I mean, and even just beginning to think about how to explain it doesn't make any sense, really. Um, what's he saying? What he's really saying is you can't take for yourself what only God can give you freely. That's what he's saying. So um, he says also, Luke, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse, 10, uh, verse 8 and 10, he says, when you attend a banquet, take the lowest seat. Let the host tell you where to sit, basically. He'll invite you up higher. If, you know. He's saying... In that illustration, he's saying, trust the host to put you where is right for you. That's what it means to be the least in relation to God. It's saying, trust God to put you in the place where you will be fulfilled, where you'll be most happy, where you'll be most glorifying to God, and where you'll be most able to bless other people. Trust that God wants to do that, and can do that. So the lastness is a kind of symbolism. It's a symbolic of humility. I, do you know what? If God says, I've got to be last, I trust that I will be happy and glorifying him and blessing other people. Whatever that last is. You know, some job that other people think is crummy. Some personality trait that you don't really understand the use for, whatever. I trust wherever God places me is the place that is right for me. It's to trust God. That's the beginning. So it means to be last. So we look at, um, go right back to the beginning of the Bible, and we look at Adam and Eve and the, t- the line of temptation that Satan took with them. What he tr- basically tried to do is to say, uh, when he tempted them to eat the fruit, he's basically saying, do you really trust that God has your best you know, in his heart? 
Does he actually want you to be fulfilled? He does, what he doesn't want is for you to be like him. He's trying to withhold something from you, right? That's what he says. If you eat this, you'll have something better than what God gives you. He's trying to get them to grasp uh, eternal life. He's trying to get them to grasp relationship with God. He's trying to get them to grasp that, uh, fellowship, what we can only have through fellowship with God, through Christ. And so that's, that's the, the root of temp, temp, temptation. So to make this more, more, more practical then, for us then, to be last, and what God commands us to be, firstly, I would say, is he, he commands us to trust how he's made you. Trust how he's made you. So the Bible says, do not think of yourself more highly than you are in Romans. You know, pride comes in because we, sometimes because we fear that I'm not going to be happy or I'm not going to be able to glorify God. I'm not going to be able to serve other people. So, and we look at ourselves and we think, like I started off here, you look at yourself and you say, how am I ever going to be like that? How am I ever going to have the things that will fulfill me as a person? And, and we fear that God has given us uh, uh, <laughs> gifts that are useless, or he's put us, put us in a place <laughs> that is useless, or he's made our brains work in such a way, you know, that we're, you know, not Einstein or whatever, or, you know, or, or we don't have the physical abilities or whatever. Something about ourselves that makes us think that I, I can't be fulfilled as a person. Is it, I think it's a profound, maybe I'm talking about it too high level, I don't know, but I think that's a profound fear that most people live with, that they're basically just a bit rubbish. And, and our defense mechanism, when we don't trust God, is to be ambitious, to be vain, to, to try and make ourselves out to be more than we actually are, so other people look at us and put us first. That life is, is fraught with the fear of being uncovered as a as a fraud, you know, as we we live in an unreal place. So God wants us to trust how He has made us as creatures. At the fundamental level, that's what He was doing with Adam and Eve. You guys, you're human. You're not God. But if you if by being human, you come into a relationship, perfect relationship with God. That's God's plan. And Satan says, no, you don't have to follow the rules of being human. You can take this God thing for yourself. And, and that's what um, you know, we're tempted to do here um, when we don't trust how God has, has made us as creatures. I, I don't mean that silly thing that people say, like, you know, I was born this way <laughs> in terms of like sin. I don't mean that. But I mean trusting the parameters God gives us as creatures. So if you think of you think of someone who believes that they're the wrong gender and the wrong body or something like that, you know that's not trusting the parameters of what, how God has made you to be you know, union of body and spirit, you know, inseparable. You can't undermine your body to fulfil yourself. Um, and you won't find fulfillment by denying your creaturely reality. Just to take one example. I'm sorry to pause so long to think about that. I wanted to say it the right way and make sure it's the right thing to say. And you can multiply the examples, you know, to 
to try and find married love with somebody who's the same gender as you and that sort of thing. That's not trusting how God has made you. That's denying how he's made you. That's trying to take for yourself what God has said you can't have. It's denying the, the created reality. Um, if, so humility is accepting how <laughs> the physicality of how God's made us. It's, it's also accepting his providence. God has placed me here, not here. You know, the, the, Paul says to Timothy, contentment with godliness is great gain. Why is that? It's, it's this contentment God has placed you in. You know, you may think that, oh, I'd, I'd be fulfilled if I was just able to live in a giant house on the edge of Regent's Park in the middle of London, and I'd have everything I need to be happy and to glorify God and to serve other people. And you live in, you know, the house on the corner there by the, like the one-bedroom house on the crossroads or something. And, and that's where God's placed you, and that's what you can afford to live in, and, you know, and, and your job ties you to that place. That's not a restriction on your happiness, your ability to glorify God, or your ability to bless other people. It's not. If that's where God has placed you, you can be content there. It's a contentment in God's laws. It's like, if I do things God's way, I trust that I don't need to break his laws to be fulfilled. You know, you, as a pastor, sometimes you have to counsel people who are, uh, you know, in, in the past, you had to talk to people who are leaving their wives or whatever, and you just want to say to a man in that situation, you want to say to them, you don't have to break God's laws to find... You know, they're doing it because they want to be happy and they think this really stupid thing is going to make them happy. You just want to go, you, you don't find happiness by breaking God's laws. That's, just, that's what it means to be last. It's to be content. God, I trust you. But when you say this is wrong and this is right, you're not trying to rob me. You're trying to bless me. But it's trusting that someone else being blessed isn't to your detriment. We have this innate fear, don't we? Because we, because we're fearful about God's plans and His character, and we we don't really know how it works. When we see someone else getting ahead, we're like, "Oh, if they get ahead, there won't be anything left for me, right? They've taken my spot." And trusting that God is able to bring out this harmonious whole where everyone, everything in all creation is blessed and fulfilled. You don't need to. It's not a rat race, you know. Just trusting that. And trusting God's wisdom and his love, the fact that he loves us and knows us better than us, ourselves. I remember when I was at school, um, everyone in my A-level biology class wanted to be a marine biologist. Because <laughs> I think in our heads we thought that meant you went to live in the Cayman Islands, do a couple of hours of scuba diving, and then, you know, drink Bacardi and Coke and do nothing all day. That's what, I think that's basically what we thought would happen, you know, that's what we meant to be a marine biologist. And uh, luckily, God didn't fulfill that dream for most of us, because actually being a marine biologist is like swimming through the silt of the Firth River in Scotland, you know, minus five degrees. And, you know, it's, that's what <laughs> we have our ideas set on, like, I want to be this, I want to be this. God knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows what the reality of things better than you, you know, too. Trusting that is what it means to be, uh, you know, to, put, to humble ourselves before God and to, to be last. It's trusting him. Pride, I'm really, I'm convinced, in most instances, comes from an ignorance that God wants to give us those things. People don't know that God wants them to be happy and wants to be glorified and he wants them to be useful, actually, to bless other people. People don't know that. Or, we don't have that excuse. We know, don't we? We fear because we're like orphans. We're adopted as children. We fear that this father who has adopted us is not as good or as loving or as gracious as he makes out to be. But he, he is, isn't he? It's, it's good to, we have to remind ourselves of that. He does have our best at heart. 
So we think, if I, if I want to be fulfilled, I've got to take matters into my hands. I've got to grasp the fruit. No one's going to give it to me. I have to make myself first so other people don't get first. It, we reject the limitations placed on us uh, by God. We reject God's laws. We don't trust his providence. We don't trust his power or character to, to achieve that wonderful harmony where everyone is first. You know, that's quite innocent. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's evil, but it's, you know, it's kind of a naive kind of evil. Like it's just a misguided and silly and immature kind of evil. But it's so dangerous because the logical conclusion of that path, if that's true, if we act on those fears, the logical conclusion puts us at ultimate odds with God. It blinds us to his power and his love and his grace. It puts us outside his kingdom. We'll ever be stuck in that situation like the disciples. We just cannot understand the cross. If you can't understand the cross, you can't accept Jesus. And if you can't accept him, then you'll shout out heaven forever. The logical conclusion, if God is not that person that we described right at the beginning, is there's only one winner. It could be you. You've got to do everything you can to get there. That's what That's Satan's plan. He's going to consume everything else, kill everything else. That's his plan, right? There's only one winner. That's, that's his plan. And it's just, it, and it is therefore right to say that pride is the most demonic, satanic, capital sin, isn't it? You see, you see where Augustine's going from that. And you know what? It's scandalous too, as well. The worst kind of thing is when people start to compete for that, is it makes you something inside you like, well, if they're pushing, if they're trying to take it for themselves, and I should too. So it's, it's this terrible sin. You know, like someone jumps the queue at Barclays or something like that. Oh, and then suddenly you find yourself, you know, jumping the queue. Well, not actually, but you know, maybe. <laughs> it draws other people into sin. So when we sin, not only are we cooperating with the devil's plan, and frankly, he's, he's going to get that, you know, if his plan was to work, he would beat us, wouldn't he? So not only that, but we're drawing other people into it as well. So pride is this terrible, terrible thing that starts off from, you know, just kind of almost like naivety, really. Okay, so that's the first uh, kind of big point. I've got a couple of applications, but just, just to sum it up, you can't grasp what can only be given. That's what it means to be last. You can't take for yourself what can only be given as a gift. And to be last is to be willing to be exactly where God has placed you. Yes? Great. This is what Jesus does, Philippians 2. In very nature, God did not consider equality with God something, something to be grasped and made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he became obedient even unto death on a cross. That, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The Father has given him because of that humility, that willingness to be where the Father said he should be. That absolute trust God has given him the name which is above all other names. And that's the trajectory God has for us to give us perfect happiness through Christ and to glorify himself perfectly, and to bless other people perfectly. I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry. So some, some applications, just, just to take from that, and we'll get on to the, the last big point. You know, I think it frees us up, actually, to know that God has a perfect uh, vocation for each of us. There's a, there's a, I don't just mean a job, but I mean, if you look at all your gifts, your situation in life, the limitations of God's law and his providence, all those things he's given you, you who you, who he has made you to be in the fullest sense of that phrase, there is something that God calls you to, a way of living and perhaps a job, perhaps a calling or vocation inside the church or outside, where you can do something that 
most blesses other people and most glorifies God and actually really fulfills you as a person as well. And it's okay to pursue that. To be last doesn't mean to have no hope that you can do something useful, right? It means to pursue that honestly and to trust that God holds out for you a, a place in this world in that great harmony of things, that great orchestra that's perfectly conducted by God. God has a place for you. You, you don't need to fear that he's going to leave you on the scrap heap. You know, you don't, and no matter what stage in life you are, because that, that vocation changes, right? In early life it's different, in later life it's different. That vocation changes you. God has a calling on your life for every, for your whole life, but also for every part of your life. There's no sense in which you're on a scrap heap. And you have a duty to pursue that and prayerfully ask God, how can I give most glory to you? How can I bless other people most in the situation I'm in right now? And trust that pursuing those things will fulfill you as a person. It's not over for you, ever. That honest pursuit of vocation should make the church a place that isn't like anywhere else. Andy's going to read a passage for us later from James. He's talking about that. Church should be a place where we're peace-loving and considerate and we bless one another. You know, church should be a place where we're pushing our own interests. We can pursue that vocation, like I said. It's right to be like... I want to find out how I can serve God best. We should be encouraging people to find out. But that means we definitely should be judging people's hearts when they do that, right? We shouldn't be going, well, look at that person putting themselves forward. (laughs) Where does that come from? It comes from a fear. If they put forward, I'm put back, right? We shouldn't be pushing our own agendas either. We shouldn't be seeking status or, you know, you know, vainglory or any of those things. We shouldn't be doing those things in church. It should be a place where there's this, this honest and beautiful pursuit of how can I best glorify God and bless other people? So Paul says, I just think it's just the most, it's just kind of tucked away towards the end of Romans. He just says this wonderful phrase. I just think it sums this up so nicely. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. It's great, isn't it? Just, just look at, you know, don't be afraid to look at who you really are. You know, don't you don't have to big yourself up or put yourself down. Just look at how you really are. Trust that God has a purpose for you in who you are. So there should be this harmony in a, in a, especially in a church, willingness to receive honest correction, eagerness to praise and build up others without, you know, fear that they're somehow, you know, bad to do, encourage other people in their gifts and so on. I think outside the church, I think just application is we should be really wary of self-promotion. Like that Twitter thing I was saying, you know, like writing your, your own biography on Twitter. It's just, that's just weird. Like, don't do that. But I don't really mean that, but, but don't do that. <laughs> but like, you know, things like, uh, I know this isn't relevant for all of you, but things like Instagram and social media, it's so easy. Why are you taking that photo? Come on. Why are you publishing that thing? Why are you telling people about why? Now, it's not all bad. You can bless other people through those things, right? You can do it to bless and inform and enrich. And you can do it to glorify God too. Those are really good things. But if you're doing it to make people think more of you than you are, that's just, or, or because you're trying to be fulfilled in some way, you know, trying to take it for yourself, that's not good. In fact, it might even blind you to what actually God is doing. In so be really, really careful of that self-promotion. You know, and Parents, be careful of Promotion by proxy. Don't do that to your kids as well. You don't, you know, you want, we want our kids to have self-esteem. We want them to think rightly about themselves. But don't be one of those parents who convinces their kids that they are gonna, I don't know. Don't make them too big for their boots, right? That's all. 
The whole world is like that at the moment. It's like, my kid's going to change the world. My kid's going to be president. Teach them to love Christ. Teach them to, to seek true happiness and fulfillment. Teach them to bless other people and to glorify God with everything in them. But don't just big up their egos. Okay. So that's what it means to be last. And um, then Jesus goes on to say, um, it, what are we saying? It's essentially to trust God, to be willing to be where he has placed you. To be first, you don't need to promote yourself. God will do it for you. So the first aspect then is to humility, is this willingness to be last. And the second, Jesus says, is that we must, he says, we must become the servant of all. He says, you must be last and you must be the servant of all. So we're going to look at why Jesus says that. That's a, um, second really big thing, I suppose. Why is it good to be the servant of all? Why is that an aspect of humility? Well, there's, you know, there's a practical aspect to it, just to begin of the fairly mundane. Being willing to serve other people and to do the jobs that nobody else wants to do and to enter into situations that no one else does is a really, really good way to find out what you're good at. <laughs> it's really practical. It's a really good way to learn about yourself and, and to hone those skills. So Jesus says, he's trustworthy with a little will be entrusted with more. You know, that's, that's the way the kingdom works. But there's a real practical aspect to this. It's not just some, you know, spiritual law. It's like, it actually makes sense. Um, so, why are we called to be servants? Partly because it helps us to find that vocation. It helps to fill out our lives. Partly because serving others is a good medicine for our pride. Right? Because when we put ourselves in situations where we are serving others, it naturally humbles us and deals with all that vanity and all that, you know, I need to do this. To do. And we learn, actually, we can glorify God and we can bless other people and we can be deeply, profoundly fulfilled and happy through serving other people. It's very good medicine. You know, if you're struggling with pride, that'd be weird, I suppose, if you knew that. But, well, no, no, I think, you know, God uses things. If you're struggling with pride, you know, volunteer for some crummy job. You've got to use it. Um, do something that no one else wants to do. You know, humble yourself. If, if you're really finding it hard not to look down on other people or finding it hard not to promote yourself, just just find a way to seek humility, really in practical ways. If you don't do it, the Bible says God will do it, and that will probably be more painful. So we want to work with him. You know, if Augustine, again, to quote him like the fourth time, Augustine says, humility is like tree roots. If you want to grow tall, First of all, you've got to grow down. You know, that's, that's what humility does. And when we seek that, we give good roots in order to be great in, in God's kingdom. We've got to grow down before we can grow up. That's a bit catchier, isn't it? But, okay, but those are some practical things. But there's a deeper spiritual reality here too. And that's where this, this child comes in. I love to think, I don't know what, you know, Jesus was in a house and he was surrounded by his disciples. What was the child doing there? Was he like throwing rocks at the wall outside? Of, Bouncing his ball, or was he like peering through the window, making a mischief of himself? Um, you know, what was the scene? I'd love to, I'd love to really know what was going on. But anyway, however he came to be there, this, this child is there, and while he's sitting down, Jesus gets up and he brings the child in to the midst of the disciples, and he says he, he embraces him, he puts his arms around him, and then and then he says something really. If you look for it, it's there. Something really, really stark. It just stands out in Mark's gospel. Mark is very pragmatic, isn't he? He's like, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did that. He says something that just sounds like it's straight out of Mark's gospel. Uh, sorry, out of John's gospel. 
He says, if you welcome a child like this in my name, you welcome me. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. That's like straight out of John 16, isn't it? You know, he's talking about all these layers of... What he's saying is that, that to welcome one like this child is to have fellowship with God himself. That's what he's saying. Like when he says, I and the Father will come and make our home with you. It's very, very similar. Well, how can that be? What is he saying here? In Jewish society at the time, children, it was a bit like Victorian society, children had no status. They weren't considered to be persons in the proper sense. And there was no inherent, there was considered no inherent value in aiding or assisting a child. So if, a, if, a, if an adult came to a house and asked for hospital, you know, some help or whatever, there was, you had a reason to do that, was you kind of had a right, a duty to do that. But, but children, no, it was, they, were, they were sort of non-persons. And only when they came into their majority did they begin to take their place in society. So, <laughs> and this child, he was, would have been expecting whatever he was doing, however he came to be there, he would have been expecting to be ignored, that's for sure. So he must have found himself quite uncomfortable with all these, you know, it wouldn't have been something he experienced. They didn't indulge their children like we do. They didn't value them like we do. The only reason, there was no, there was no return benefit for valuing this child, for welcoming. There's, there's nothing that you get back from it in that culture. So there's no reason to welcome a child for their own sake. The only reason to welcome this child, he's saying, is because of his inherent value. Because he's a human being made in God's image. And, and what he's saying really is, when we love someone for their own sake, purely for their own sake, instead of what we get out of it. We are being just like God. In fact, we're joining in with him. When we love people for their own sake, not for what we get out of it, we're being just like God. That's how God treats us, isn't it? He created us, he didn't have to do that. He wasn't like, oh, I'm lonely, I need to create some people. He created us for us. He's, he saved us, not because he had to, not because he was like, oh, they messed up, like, I really have to save them because I made them. No. He was perfectly entitled to wipe us all out. But for our blessing, he gave his only son. That's, this is what God does. And what we see here, the very definition of love is to serve other people. Not for what you get out of it, but for their own sake. That's who God is. And that's who God invites us, commands us to be. The way we find this fulfillment, this fullness of life, this eternal life, is by pouring out our lives for other people. Service is the very nature of love. So the last passage, last time we read, you know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And we were like, that means to sacrifice ourselves. And I'm saying, Jesus is making it more specific. To, sac- to take up your cross and follow him, to freely lay down your life for others, is, to, is very practically to serve them, to do what's good for other people. To want the best for them and to put that into action as much as we can. So we think that taking things for ourselves is what makes us fulfilled. Taking things for ourselves is what's going to get us first in God's book. We build ourselves up. And God says, that's not how anything works. That's not even how I work. And I'm God. How things work are you give yourself to others. And only then you become in yourself, you have this life, this fulfillment, this happiness in yourself. It's uh, 
Only then can you really glorify God. Only then can you be everything God has made you to be. So this fulfillment we long for comes through gift, not through grasping. It comes through God's gift to us, but we have to freely accept how he's made us to be. But it also comes through our gift of ourselves to other people. You see that picture? If we want to have eternal life, if we want to love like God loves, if we want to walk in fellowship with him, we have to serve other people. It's the very nature of love itself. It's, I've probably made it sound a lot more complicated than it is. <laughs> but that's the very nature of love itself, is to serve others. So let me just finish with a few applications. We talked about vocation a minute ago, but we have this duty to find our place and to trust that God has a place for us in the world. Just know this. It's so important. Whatever God has planned for you, however he's made you to be, his reason is for you to, to glorify him and always to bless other people. You think of someone like a, you know, a virtuoso violinist or something. And, you know, amazing violin and practice for hours a day. And if, you know, find out you're like the best violinist in the whole world. How weird would it be if they never played in public? It'd just be odd, wouldn't it? <laughs> or they only played in public when some other violinist came along and said, hey, I'm much better than that other guy. <laughs> like, right, I'm going to prove him wrong. You know, that would be so odd, wouldn't it? God has made us. He's given us a calling in life. Not so that we can just look at ourselves and go, aren't I great? But so that we can bless other people. Not only does God want you to have confidence, he has a place for you in the world and a way in which you can come Glorify him and be fulfilled. But he's given you that so that you can bless other people. Just trust that and use the gifts God has given you to bless others. I want to talk to you, uh, just say something to parents and particularly mothers. You know, if all I talk of... um, Value in children. It's very, you know, very big these days to sort of, you see all the celebrities and that sort of thing. Like, the hardest job in the world is to be a mum, that sort of thing. <laughs> but the reason why we say that so often is because we know from hard experience that actually it doesn't feel like that, does it? Like, the reason we need celebrities on TV to tell us, like, the best job in the world, the hardest job is to be a mother or to be a parent is because actually it often feels like quite a thankless task. It often feels like, sometimes it can feel like a, a waste. Time and effort and energy. Not necessarily all the time, and some people more than others, but it can feel like that. You feel like you're quite literally pouring yourself away. I just want to say to you, to mums, to parents, you are literally doing what Jesus commands in this passage. For all its symbolic meaning, welcoming a child in Jesus' name, that's what you're doing. Pouring, serving the least with no immediate, <laughs> obvious benefit. You know, I know it changes as they get older and so on, but you are literally doing what Jesus commands. You know, parents, um, married couples, in as much as you are open to God giving you new life in your family, as long as you have that attitude of, I'm ready for God, to, you know, I'm, I, I, I welcome children in God's name, you are literally doing what Jesus says. And... That's great because it's obedience. 
But I just want to assure you that you know, whatever you think fellowship with God is, whatever you think it means to have a relationship with God, when you're doing that, you are so close to him. So close to his heart. And he is, yes, he's sanctifying you and making you holy and he's making you humble through those things. But he's also fulfilling you. He's making you alive. Shaping you to be like a, his son. The joy set before you is so great. You will receive as a result of your efforts as a Christian parent so much more than you put in. And I mean, you know, in this life, it'll, it'll be so worth it. Because this is, when you have a child, it is not just another life, 70, 80, 90 years. It's a soul, right? Made in God's image. You're giving life to the most precious thing that God has made in the universe. You're cooperating with him in the greatest act of creation and love that exists. And the rewards of your effort will, <laughs> you will begin to reap in this life, but they will echo, go on and on and on into eternity as this life you bring into the world brings <laughs> just the most glorious glory to God and the most incredible happiness to you and to the people around. So cherish that job. There'll be times when you don't want to and there'll be times when, you, you know, I know like almost no one ever actually gives up on that job, right? But there'll be times when you feel like, oh, what is the point? Cherish it. You know, Paul says to servants, he says, serve your masters, not with eye service, not just, you know, oh, I've got to do the minimum. As if you're serving the Lord himself. That's what Jesus basically says, that's what you're doing when you serve a child. You're welcoming me. You're serving me. So trust that's true. And I think lastly, we should look for just the golden opportunities to serve the least. I just think that's a, a slam dunk. You know, Sam Ward, he preached here uh, a few weeks ago. You know, he, he said to me, I, I want to write a book and I, I want to call it something like The Upside Down Kingdom. I said, that's already been written, but he said, okay, I'll think of something else. But, uh, <laughs> but he said, working in Manchester in Openshaw in the, and he said, you know, I just look around at the church and you get these churches and they've got so much money and they're like in rich or middle class areas. And the, you know, the most talented, Ministers go there, the best preachers, the most resources. They just pour money and resources into these places. And he says, you look at the places where there's real need, places like Openshaw, and nobody wants to go there. He says, it should be the other way around. It's like so frustrating, right? But you see, what he's saying is just what Jesus is saying. As a church, we should be looking for those opportunities, not that, like, make us, you know, look grandiose or, you know, make us feel better about ourselves. We should be looking at opportunities to serve the least, serve those where there is no immediate payback, but it's glorious in God's eyes. And individually, that's the same. We should be looking for those golden moments in the Christian life where there's no immediate payback, but we get to serve the least because when we do that, we have fellowship with God. I'm sure you, maybe you're facing a situation like that and God's challenging you. Maybe something's coming down the road. He wants you to be ready for it. Let's pray.